0: Well, the Christmas season has officially arrived. Since we've celebrated Thanksgiving, it is now socially acceptable to put up your Christmas tree, to turn on Christmas music and start decking the halls. I got a little head start on that this past Monday as I went out for my run. I put on Christmas music and ran through my neighborhood decking the halls in my mind as I was celebrating Christmas. And we've had a tree up for about three weeks. So if you're out there and got an early start, welcome to the party. We're really excited for Christmas here at Crossroads. You know, Christmas is gonna look a little different this year, not just because we're still dealing with this worldwide pandemic that will threaten the uh, normal traditions and routines and probably gatherings with our family, but also because here at Crossroads, we have two chapters left in our year-long study through the Gospel of John. And those two chapters actually are focused on the resurrection of Jesus, which is more the theme of Easter than of Christmas, right? And so it might feel a little confusing. My dad was here in town just recently, and he said, what are you guys doing for Christmas at Crossroads? And I said, well, Dad, we're going to try something different. We're going to be talking about Easter at Christmas. And he kind of scratched his head a little bit, and I said, yes, I do think we might confuse those people who only show up once or twice a year. But we're glad that you're here, and we hope that... As we put these two together, you'll actually see the themes of not just Christmas and Easter, but actually the themes of the entire gospel story come to life. You know, as we were planning for 2020 and we saw this unusual timing kind of happening, we thought it might be really incredible to just see how the birth of Jesus parallels the resurrection of Jesus. Because they both speak of his appearing. In fact, that's what the word Advent means, the appearing, the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. And just like there was anticipation in that first arrival when this baby was born in Bethlehem, there was a sense of anticipation, of excitement, even hope that Jesus would come back to life just like he said he would. So if you will, grab a copy of the Bible, either whether if you have a hard copy or on a, a device. Turn with me to John chapter 20. And we're going to pick up actually right where we left off two weeks ago, where Jesus has just said the final words of his time on the cross. He said, it is finished. With those words, he completed the task of offering his life as a ransom for the sins of the world, taking the place of all humanity, paying the penalty for your sins and for mine, and taking the wrath of God by dying. Now his enemies, his doubters, even his disciples thought that this was the end of the story. And while some wanted to bring an end to Jesus, his disciples were perplexed. They were dismayed by all that had happened and how it was all playing out. In fact, I think they had lost hope. Have you ever been there? You ever been a point in your life where life just wasn't working out how you thought it might? Well, John 19 ends with two religious leaders going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and a guy named Nicodemus that we met earlier in our study through John in John chapter 3. Both of these men take the body of Jesus from the cross and they bury him. They perform the normal Jewish rituals for burying practices. They wrap Jesus' body in linen cloths and they fill those cloths with lots of spices. They lay him in a tomb. It was actually Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and it was not too far from the cross. What's interesting is these two men who were religious leaders are now followers of Jesus. And they were in a hurry because it was Friday. And at the end of Friday would start Sabbath on Saturday. And they weren't going to do any work on Sabbath. So let's pick up now in John chapter 20, verse 1. And it reads this. We see the empty tomb. Early on the first day of the week while it was still dark Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed by the entrance. So they came running so she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved and said, "They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him." So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Are you a morning person? I'm much more a morning person than a night owl. In fact, on a good day, I'm in bed by 9.30 and asleep at least before the news starts at 10 or before it's over by 10.30. It frustrates my wife a little bit, but we get along with her being a night owl and me being a morning person. Well, as you can see, John records that it's very early in the morning. I think it was still dark when Mary Magdalene made her way to the tomb. Now don't miss the symbolism that John points out here. This darkness represents unbelief, the world without Jesus, even hopelessness. Jesus is the light of the world, and that light shines into the darkness, and it brings hope. John also notes that it's the first day of the week. From this day forward, Jesus' followers would gather and celebrate his life on the first day, Sunday, the day of his resurrection. And we'll see why in just a few moments. Mary Magdalene is the person that John records arriving to the tomb that morning. She was there to finish the burial rites for Jesus. But the other three Gospels note that she was not alone, nor was she the only Mary that went to the tomb that day. Mary was accompanied by Mary, the mother of Jesus, another Mary, probably the Mary of the mother of Jesus' sister, and you thought it was easy to keep your kid's name straight, right? There was also a lady there whose name was Salome. She was probably the wife of Zebedee, the father and mother of James and John. And there was a lady named Joanna who was married to one of Herod's officials. These men were all followers of Jesus. Luke records that they had financially supported Jesus and his disciples in their ministry. John abruptly introduces us to this lady named Mary Magdalene without really any introduction other than the fact of where she was from, this town called Magdala. She was one of the last ones at the cross, and now she's one of the first people who arrive at the empty tomb. Jesus had delivered Mary Magdalene from seven demons, and this freedom and life change that she experienced because of Jesus led to a deep devotion And I think that could be our story, too. You see, we remember what Jesus has done in our lives, and that should lead to a deep devotion to him. What Mary finds when she arrives at the tomb, though, shocks her. The stone that had covered the opening of the tomb was gone, and her only conclusion was that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. Now, grave robbing was really common in the ancient world, so much so that there was actually a capital offense as a punishment for grave robbing. Matthew records that in between the crucifixion and resurrection, the religious leaders went to Pilate and asked him to provide some security around the tomb of Jesus because they remembered Jesus prophesying that after three days he would come back to life. They were scared that some of his followers would come and take the body and and kind of reenact or or make it appear that Jesus had resurrected. And so, Pilate provided a garrison of soldiers, which meant there were 16 soldiers guarding the tomb of Jesus. And he actually put a seal on the stone so that anybody who approached it knew they were risking their life if they were messing with the tomb where Jesus lay. Now, uh, John mentions that Mary comes and tells him and Peter about what she has found. When Mary arrived, the stone, the soldiers, and the body of Jesus were all missing. And they all concluded that something bad must have happened. John doesn't identify himself by name. He just calls himself the other disciple, which that would seem really humble had he not included also some words like the one Jesus loved. Like my dad's favorite is kind of how it plays out in your family, Mike. He also mentions that he outruns Peter to the grave. He's humble, yet he's competitive. I love these little incidental details from an eyewitness account because they prove to the reality and the factualness of the resurrection. Neither Mary, Magdalene, or John went into the tomb when they arrived. They just kind of leaned in. I mean, would you go into a tomb in the dark where there were signs of mischief all around? I don't think so. Well, they just kind of saw what they saw. They saw the linens that Jesus' body had been wrapped in they saw the cloth that had been over his head that was usually used to keep the jaw shut after death. And as they were looking at those things, Peter, true to form, arrives on the scene and he busts right into the tomb and he sees the same thing the others had sold. The, the linen cloths were folded neatly, resting where Jesus' body had been. Some scholars say it's like a balloon with the air left out of it and it's just kind of remaining there empty. Well, Because of the way that things were arranged, any forensic scientist would quickly observe that this was not a scene of a a grab-and-dash crime. Grave robbers would not have gone to the time or energy to fold these linen cloths and put them back where they would. They would have maybe not even been able to access the grave of Jesus because of the soldiers and the seal. The wrappings around Jesus' body would have probably been hardened by this time, and they would have needed to be ripped apart to remove his body. The grave robber theory to what happened to Jesus' body, whether it was supposedly his disciples who who stole his body, or maybe even the religious leaders took the body so that they could make sure Jesus would not resurrect. Well, neither of those theories hold water. Something else had happened. John highlights some unique details in his account, like lots of running by grown men. That would have never happened in the ancient world. Men walked everywhere they went, but they would never run. Something unique was happening here. Also, John uses the word saw. He says, Mary saw, John saw, and Peter saw the linen cloths. All this is referring to the ability to to visualize or see physical, material things. But in verse 8 something different, a different kind of scene happens. The Greek word means to understand the significance of. Listen to what John says. Finally, the other disciple, referring to himself, who had reached the tomb first, a little point of interest, also went inside. Look what it says, he saw and he believed. This is the scene of eyes of faith that leads to belief, not just seeing, but perceiving and believing. I think it's the first glimpse of hope that the resurrection brings. And John is beginning to consider the full reality of who Jesus is. He's quick to point out with some editorial notes that they did not understand all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus' resurrection, but they eventually will. Peter and John return home. They go back to their home, bewildered, perplexed by all they had seen. But let's keep reading and see what happens next. Picking up in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus. This is a very special moment. It's, it's a tender moment and it has a significant transition for all of Christendom. Mary Magdalene had remained at the tomb and she was crying, she was weeping, she was wailing. She took a second look into the tomb, and she noticed two angels. Interesting, the viewing of two angels didn't seem to startle her at all. You know, angels in the Bible aren't often these winged creatures that are floating in midair that we see like in Christmas cards or in other cartoons or TV shows. They're actually just typically normal human beings, often male, and they appear to do the work of God, to announce something significant as the plan of God. These ministering spirits appear at crucial times. We see them at the birth of Jesus, and now we see them at the resurrection of Jesus the presence of angels at the tomb testifies to the fact that the disappearance of Jesus' body has been caused by divine, not human, intervention. And the angels ask, ask Mary Magdalene a question, but it's really more of a statement. They say, why are you crying? But it really should be better translated as saying, there's no need to cry. They knew what had happened. The other three Gospels, they, they Have a conversation between Mary or the other women and the presence of one angel or these two angels. And I I put all their statements together in one paragraph. Listen how it reads. The angel said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Go quickly and tell his disciples and Peter, he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Then they remembered his words. That's from Matthew 28, from Mark 16, and also Luke 24. You know, in John, Mary answered with a desperate cry to the angels, their question. She wants to know where Jesus' body possibly could be so she could go and bring it back. But as she's getting ready to respond, Mary's approached by someone she fails to recognize is the exact person she actually came to see. John says that Mary Magdalene thinks that the person who is behind her is the caretaker of the garden. And this person asked her the same question. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? It's interesting that Jesus is the one asking the question now. And he asks the exact same question he did of those who came to arrest him in the garden. Who is it that you're looking for? Mary gets ready to give her normal response, but she doesn't realize it's Jesus until he says her name. Then she realizes who's in front of her. I think it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus says happens between a good shepherd and the sheep in John 10. Remember, he says a good shepherd, the sheep know his voice. He, the shepherd, knows their name. He calls them by name and they follow him. That's what we see happening right here in this moment. Mary knew Jesus and Jesus knew her. I need to point out here that there is no historical evidence that there was anything else going on between Mary Magdalene and Jesus other than a teacher-follower relationship. Some have and made this scandalous to think that there was more of a romantic re- relationship between the two, that they sired a young boy who began to lead a dynasty in the Middle East. All that is hogwash. It's Hollywood and nothing more than suspicion to to try to undermine what is actually historically known to be true. That there was a baby born in Bethlehem who was given the name Jesus. It was a miraculous birth. That this man grew to to be a man and he was a a well-known teacher. He performed many miraculous signs. It's historical accurate that he was um, executed by the Roman officials and he was laid in a tomb. And three days later, his body was not there. That story might seem really unimaginable or unexplainable, but I want you to know it is undeniable. And Mary Magdalene is the first of many who encountered the resurrected Christ firsthand. She's in a long string of eyewitness accounts of physical interaction with Jesus, that he was no longer dead or in the grave, but he was alive, just like he said he would. His resurrection is another proof. It might just be the most important proof to his deity that he is fully God. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord. He fulfilled what he prophesied about himself and what was promised would happen. He finished what he started. And Mary responds by exclaiming Rabbani, which means teacher. But it's much more than teacher to her. She's saying it's my teacher my Lord, my master, and she worships him." There's actually a statue made of called Robani, where Mary is reaching out for Jesus. And picture her kneeling at his feet, clasping his feet, and worshiping him. Her faith is stronger now than it's ever been. Her hope is being realized. While she had been confused about what all was happening, She, like John, is now recognizing that the death of Jesus is not the end of the story, and the gospel is not complete without a resurrected Jesus. So Mary Magdalene becomes the first to see firsthand, who, like many others past her, is understanding that Jesus is the satisfaction to her deepest longings, the fulfillment of all her hopes. You no, know, many of us can remember when we had that moment where, we, where it really became real to us, that Jesus is not just a good teacher or somebody we read about at Christmas time or Easter, but he truly is Messiah, Lord, Savior, the source of our hope. Others are still maybe on a journey to holding out hope or for something to hope in. Well, the resurrection validates Jesus as fully God, as Messiah, he rose and was seen. And there was a full body resurrection in the flesh. He was recognized by people. He had wounds on his body. He desired food to eat. He could even be touched. David Guzak says this. The resurrection proves that though it looked like Jesus died on the cross as a common criminal, he actually died as a sinless man out of love and self-sacrifice to bear the guilt of our sin. The death of Jesus on the cross was the pavement, but the resurrection was the receipt showing the payment was perfect in the sight of God the Father. While in his death we have received forgiveness of sins, it is in his resurrection that we experience life to the full and eternal life, victory over death. It's because of his resurrection that we have hope in this life and eternal life in the hope to come. It's why Jesus was born. And before we see that in the first advent, I want to look at what Jesus says to Mary in verses 17 and 18. Jesus says do not hold on to me for I have not ascended to the father go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and to your father to my God and your God Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news I have seen the Lord and she told them that that he had said these things to her in this moment we see a new reality. Jesus was not forbidding Mary Magdalene from physically touching him. He actually later encourages Thomas to touch him. He's indicating something significantly spiritually. He tells her that he will soon be ascending to the Father. Most Jewish traditions thought of heaven being up in the air, of going upward when you went to heaven. Jesus is returning to heaven, his original home, his eternal home, the place he promised to go and prepare a place for you and me, for all who believe in him. It's where the father is. But did you catch what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene about the father? Up to this point, Jesus had only referred to God as the father or my father. But in this moment, he says to Mary, your father, your God. It's as if Jesus is saying, our relationship is now different. I'm now just not your teacher, I'm your brother. Because of what Jesus has completed on the cross and through the grave, we are now children of God. It's exactly what John said would happen earlier when he said this words in John 1, 11 through 13. He, meaning Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural scent, nor a human's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. God is now the father of all who place their faith in Jesus. And this is something that God does. It's supernatural. It's in the same vein of him being born as a virgin and coming back to life after he did. We're born again and we live forever because of what God is doing in us. And that's where we find our hope. Jesus conquered sin and death so that we can. It's why he came to earth in the first place. He fulfilled what was promised about him throughout the entire Old Testament. It's news that the angels wanted everyone to know and for those of us who experience it to tell. The evidence is the testimony of those who saw Jesus after his resurrection and in the changed lives that they lived from that point on. Mary Magdalene obeyed the orders of Jesus. She went and told the other followers, come and see Jesus, he's gonna meet us at Galilee. And people like Peter, along with the other disciples, went everywhere preaching about Jesus, even to the point of being martyred for their faith, because they believed it was true. If they didn't believe it was true, they would have never given their life for it. Jesus finished what he started. And I want to check out this promise that was made even before he was born. Flip over with me to now Luke chapter 1. Let's read just a little bit of the Christmas story beginning in verse 26. Luke 1 26 records, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The first appearing of Jesus also involved a woman named Mary, an angel, some troubling news about what was all going on or what was going to happen. But we also see hope. You know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't fully understand what the angel was trying to tell her or all that was going to happen, but she was fully committed to what he promised God's plan was. It was obvious this child was to be the promised Messiah, and I love her response recorded by Luke in verse 38. She says, "'I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled.'" I see in that a complete trust in God, that he is faithful to his word, that he finishes what he started. Verse 37, it says, No word from God will ever fail. See, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus all happened as prophesied and promised according to God's purpose and plan. N.T. Wright says, Ask people, uh, Christians, what's the biggest day of the year for Christians? And most will say Christmas. That's what our society has achieved, a romantic Midwestern, or med, midwinter festival. Though we really don't actually know what time of the year Jesus was born. The true answer, N.T. Wright says, and I wish churches would find ways of making this clear, is Easter. This is a moment of new creation. If it hadn't been for Easter, nobody would have ever dreamed of celebrating Christmas. This is the first day of God's new week. The darkness is gone, and the sun is shining. Author Ken Davis says this, "'The appearing of Jesus began "'where God filled the empty womb of Mary "'with a son, Jesus.' "'And it continues with the empty tomb "'outside of Jerusalem. "'It begins with conception "'and comes to fulfillment with resurrection.' Both supernatural acts of God. Our hope is found and secured in knowing that God is faithful to his promises. It's what connects the first advent with the second advent. The appearing of Jesus at birth with the appearance of Jesus at his resurrection. And it also connects the promise that he will return again at his second coming. That's where our hope is found. And Peter, who was there at the empty tomb that day, a first hand witness of that. He had a personal encounter with Jesus after his resurrection, and he speaks of the hope we have. Listen to the words he writes in his epistle, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. It's on the screen if you want to follow along. Peter writes, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, These have come so that you have proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though we by fire. It may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. What a declaration of the hope Jesus was born to bring, that he died to save, and that he rose to secure for you and me. So my question as we wrap up today is this, what are you hoping for? Or maybe better put, where is your hope found? This is a much bigger question than what you anticipate receiving under the Christmas tree in just a few weeks. Especially in a year where everything has been turned upside down. Our routines and norms have been interrupted or altered. Our jobs and our health seem insecure or fragile. It's even hard to find ourselves not being unsure or insecure, scared, disappointed, even discouraged. We have to consider where we will find hope. When nothing seems sure or the same, there is one thing that has never changed, and that is Jesus brings hope that he is faithful to his promises, that he finishes what he started, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, forever. We can trust him, and we can find our hope secure in him. Both Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene, his friend, found hope in Jesus. And you can, too. On Monday morning, when I went out for my run, I, Open up a new Christmas album by Passion Worship out of Atlanta, Georgia. And the title track of this album for this year is called Hope Has a Name. And listen to the words. I couldn't have planned this any better for a message on hope. Just uh, thank you, Lord, is what I thought on Monday morning. Listen to the words that these guys wrote. Breaking through the silence with glory in the highest, the hope of all creation resting in his mother's arms. The song on the horizon, ringing through the heavens, the long-awaited Savior, come to set the captives free. Come to set the captives free. Come to set us free. Hope has a name, Emmanuel, the light of the world who broke through the darkness. All hail the King, Emmanuel, the light of the world, the glory of heaven. Another line says, we didn't see it coming, the story of redemption. What started in a manger ended in an empty grave. So come if you're broken. Come if you're searching. If you need healing, he's where you'll find it. Lay down your burdens and breathe in forgiveness. And if you need freedom, he's where you'll find it. Because hope has a name, Emmanuel, the light of the world who broke through the darkness. All hail the king, Emmanuel, the light of the world, the glory of heaven. See, hope is much more than a campaign strategy or slogan. It's more than wishful thinking. It's more than the last name of a famous comedian. It's not just a town in Arkansas or the good name for a baby girl or the type of a chest or a really big diamond or an episode in the Star Wars saga or just a good cape off the coast of Africa. Hope is the confidence that God is faithful to his promises and that he finishes what he starts. That he has a plan for your life and for mine. And it's been from the beginning of time. And his promise is to work for your good, to provide for your needs, to never leave you or forsake you. He hasn't given up on you and he never will. So trust him. Place your faith in him. Receive him as your savior. Follow him as your Lord. He came to save you. He rose to show that he's capable. So find your hope. In him would you pray with me God we celebrate the arrival of Jesus not just at this time of the year or a little later in spring we celebrate the arrival of Jesus every day because that's where our hope is found and God in a shifting world where nothing seems really predictable or even like something we could hold on to Lord it's never been and so what's always been true is that Jesus is fully God He became fully man to show us how to live and how to love. And he rose from the grave to show us that he is Lord of heaven and earth. He is truly who you promised him to be. He fulfilled all those promises. And he reigns in heaven now to bring us hope to help us to know that we have hope today and hope in the life to come. And so, God, my prayer is that for all of us who know Jesus as more than just somebody to celebrate at Christmas, for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, God, I pray that he would be our rock. He would be the place our hope is found secure, regardless of our health situation, regardless of our financial situation, God, regardless of of our relationships and the situation they may be in, God, we trust in Jesus as our hope. God, my prayer is also for those who might be searching for something to believe in, to hold on to, God, that today, maybe more than any other day in their life, they would see clearly who Jesus is, and they would reach out for him. They would find him more than just a wise teacher. He would be a faithful friend. He'd be a brother. He would be a savior. He'd be a lord. And God, I pray that the reality of that in all of our lives would change the way that we live. It would change the way that we love. And this world would see that we have a hope that this world does not offer. We have a hope that's in heaven. And it's because of that we can live here every day until we see you face to face. Thank you for Jesus who made all this possible. It's in his name that we pray right now. Amen.